Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta, thanking you for joining me. We're going to have a treat coming up this hour with Dr. Lydia McGrew. She's the author of Testimonies to the Truth, Why You Can Trust the Gospels. She has uh, done extraordinary work in a very close reading of the Gospels, in pointing out undesigned coincidences, uh, unnecessary details that um, that point to eyewitness accounts, um, unexplained allusions, in other words, statements that are made that would have been obvious to the first readers or hearers of the gospel, but not necessarily to those of us, uh, you know, 2,000 years removed, and also those allusions being picked up from the surrounding culture in Second, Second Temple Judaism, including the Old Testament. Uh, unified personalities is another area where she shows that the profile of gospel figures uh, th- from various sources show uh, authentic identity, an authentic person. We're going to have a fun time with it, and she's, again, got is tremendously respected, and um, testimonies to the truth. She's been with us before, by the way. Uh, she joined us a while back, a book called Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospels and Acts. So she'll join us. And then also today, uh, we're going to be joined by Dr. Gregory Popcheck. Uh, Greg is the director of the Pastoral Solutions Institute. And he's just taken a very close look at the uh, Future Families Project. Uh, again, this was a project of the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate, and it analyzes data from Catholic adults to see what was different about the faith environment in which they were raised. So we're going to get this, again, of great concern to all Catholic parents, how to do our best to ensure that we pass on a lively faith uh, to our children and our grandchildren. So that's coming up. But first, as always, let's get today's headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Monday, February 12th, it's the Feast of St. Benedict of Anyan. Today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. We're learning more about the woman who used an assault rifle to shoot parishioners at Joel Osteen's megachurch in Houston. We do have some anti-Semitic writings that we have uncovered during this process. Police Commander Chris Hasek says there was also a sticker on her weapon that simply read, Palestine. The gunman is identified as Genesee Moreno. The 36-year-old has used a male name in the past, but police have stopped short of saying that she may have been transgender. Two off-duty cops shot and killed the person. 
Pope Francis met with the president of Argentina this morning, showcasing a possible reconciliation after the South American politician voiced sharp criticisms of the pontiff last year. Argentine officials report the meeting lasted more than an hour, was cordial and sympathetic, with a lot of friendship between the two. The White House and Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre is deflecting concerns over President Biden's age. President Biden does more in one hour than most people do in a day. His age with experience and expertise is an incredible asset, and he proves it every day. The president's age has become a primary issue leading up to the presidential election following the special counsel report that found Biden appeared to have significant limitations regarding his memory. An ABC News poll found 86 percent of Americans believe he's too old to serve in office. Biden is the oldest president to run for office at the age of 81. And former President Trump is facing more fallout over his weekend comments on NATO. During a rally in South Carolina, Trump warned NATO allies that as president, he would encourage Russia to do whatever they want to member countries who aren't spending enough on defense. The NATO Secretary General said such comments put American and European soldiers at risk. From your Alvi Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Well, good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, and joining me right now, Dr. Gregory Popcheck. He is director of the Pastoral Solutions Institute, a group pastoral telecounseling practice providing Catholic integrated marriage, family, and individual counseling services to Catholics around the world. He and his wife, Lisa, have authored over 20 books, Integrating Insights from Counseling Psychology with the Timeless Wisdom of Our Catholic Faith. And in 2019, the Popchecks together with the Holy Cross Family Ministries, founded the Peyton Institute for Domestic Church Life, an organization that is dedicated to promoting Catholic family well-being and spirituality through original research, professional training, and development of creative resources. Greg, good to have you back here again. Thanks. It's great to have me here, Al. Thank you so much. So let's talk about this, uh, this Future, family, Future Faithful Families project. Uh, tell mm-hmm. me about its origins. So uh, you mentioned the Peyton Institute. So we sponsored the study through the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate, and uh, Dr. Mark Gray at the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate at okay. Georgetown and I uh, developed the research, and uh, Dr. Gray con- conducted the interviews with the families that we identified. So we, you know, only a, we found that only about 15% of children who are raised in Catholic households become practicing Catholic adults. So we identified families who bucked that trend and successfully raised most, and in a lot of cases, all of their kids to be practicing adult Catholics. And we interviewed both uh, the parents and their adult children to identify both the spiritual practices and the family dynamics that contributed to successfully passing the faith on from one generation Hmm. to the next. Uh, And were you able to draw together a, a consistent picture of the effective uh, Catholic parent who can pass on the faith? We were. Um, and, and so there were a couple of things. First of all, um, we, we were able to determine what were some of those uh, practices that the families um, who did successfully raise adult, uh, children to adult, uh, excuse me, children to a faithful adulthood. Um, we also found uh, the interesting thing was that, you know, 
and I'm sure you've heard this all the time, Al, but, but we get this, Lisa and I get this on the radio program and our pastoral counseling practice is parents call us and say, you know, I did all the things, right? I, I sent my kid to Catholic school. We sacrificed yeah. to make that happen. We took them to mass every week. Yeah. Uh, we, they went to the youth groups uh, and then they grew up and they fell away from the church. Um, what we found was that all of those things are important, but they're secondary and supportive okay. to how the faith is lived out in the home and the degree to which children experience the faith as a source of the warmth in the home. Um, and so families that did successfully raise children to a faithful adulthood tended to prioritize family time and be careful to not let extracurricular activities crowd out family activities or rituals. Um, the the uh, Many times um, the interviewees uh, use the word huggy to describe oh. the relationships between parents and children. They were very generous with affection and affirmation in the okay. home. Okay. Uh, they tended to have a gentler approach to discipline that focused on teaching uh, good behavior and virtue as opposed to just punishing bad behavior. Mm -hmm. um, they had strong family rituals for, um, well, doing all kinds of things like working and playing and talking and praying together as a family on, a, on often a daily basis. Uh, of course, the, those rituals included things like mass attendance and regular family prayer, uh, especially family rosary, interestingly, uh, that stood out mm -hmm. as well as like recent yeah. meals. But, but beyond that, they would have um, like morning prayer times or evening prayer times, or they would give blessings to their children, those kinds of things that made uh, you know, prayer a part of the daily life of the family in, mm -hmm. in accessible ways. And one of the other big things uh, that the adult children especially mentioned was uh, a spirit of a real open dialogue in the household so that they felt they could come to their parents with uh, questions about their faith, about doubts, about struggles, about que you know difficulties, yeah. and they wouldn't get a lecture, um, and uh, you know that they that they would be received well, uh, and if the parents didn't know the answer to something, then they would make it a project as a family to, to look into it okay. uh, and study it together. So, in fact, uh, several of the interviewees uh, mentioned the phrase "discover." They would discover God together. They they would try to, and which was you know flattering to Lisa and I because we have a book of the same name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so uh, then you know they they would they would look for uh, ways to serve as families too. So many of the households uh, we interviewed said that they did things like discussed the family budget and and how to save money as a family. Um, so that they could make charitable donations to, to different groups. Um, some of the people talked about housing immigrants in their homes or doing service projects in their parish together. So, you know, this paints a very clear picture of a family that was very focused on the quality of their own relationships, of, of, of showing up for each other, making time to be a family, uh, and serving others together as well. And so, again, what we really found was that, that these families um, they 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 lived their faith at home first, and everything else they did outside the home was seen as a logical expansion mm -hmm. of the way the faith was lived at, inside the home. Uh, and so all the things, like I said, like mass attendance, or um, which of course is central, but but still, you know, mass attendance yeah. or Catholic education or uh, youth ministry or all those other things were very important, but were secondary and supportive of the primary influence, which was how much the children experienced the, war the faith as a source of the warmth at home. So let me ask you, um, is there a wide range of difference between the Huggies and those who are not very physically affectionate? Well, we didn't do we didn't have a control group, for example. So what we what we really tried to do was look at um, those those people who were extraordinary. You know, as I yeah. said at the beginning, 
you know, only a certain a number of, well, only about 15% of children who are raised in Catholic households become faithful Catholic adults. And and so what, what we really were trying to look at was, you know, lots of people go to, lots of families take their kids to Mass every week. You know, lots of families take their kids to Catholic schools. Lots of families do all these other things. What were the differences that these families really exhibited yeah. that made them stand yeah. out? And and so these were the factors that the families really spelled it. So it's not to say that other families weren't affectionate at all, but that the, these families were were affectionate enough that it made it notable and the and specifically these these uh, interviewees um w- w- were able to contribute or actually attribute the affection in their homes to the way the families lived their faith mm-hmm. yeah so this was it was congruent with the, who we are as catholics uh mm-hmm. we uh we create a warm affirming environment because we are all made in god's image and likeness and uh, this is lived out by respecting you, listening to you, hearing you, and um, also doing proper, uh, effective discipline uh, based uh, in a loving response. Um, yeah, I, the reason I brought this uh, other thing up, though, is because yeah. I've heard people say, um, well, my, my dad just wasn't very affectionate. That's just God. the way he was. And mm-hmm. I, I was just curious to know, uh, are there people who simply are that way? <laughs> or can they become more affectionate? Yeah, you can know, they, they can become. Yeah. They, absolutely, they can. Yeah, so, you know, the reality is, I mean, you know, look at any baby. Um, babies are all affectionate, yeah. right? And that's yeah. all babies want. Yeah. Um, so if we aren't affectionate, it's been trained out of us at some point. Yeah. You know, we got God gave it to us naturally, and somebody along the line told us that we shouldn't be that way. Um, and so, yes, we can absolutely learn to be affectionate again and, and affirming again. And in fact, you know, I, I think that that you know, considering that God made babies to be affectionate, then doing that work is is reclaiming the inheritance that God gave us in the yes. first place. Yeah. So I think it's important to do that work. The thing that I, you know, the thing that I want to really highlight in this, though, is that again, you know. Um, the, these families weren't perfect. You know, they, they had difficulties just like every other family. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they did, they struggled differently too, you know. So they, they, they felt that their faith helped them hang in there with each other and be a team through difficulties and come out the other end stronger because of their faith. Uh, and, and these, you know, the kids who were raised in these households could look at their family and say, you know, there's something different about the way we struggle than we see our friends' families struggle who mm-hmm. aren't as faithful or aren't Catholic or aren't even Christian. And, and again, you know, that, 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 that really brings into focus the importance of... Uh, working to do these things in any home this is these are not these aren't perfect families these aren't family some of them were divorced families or blended families that we interviewed who were, who were successful in raising uh, faithful adult kids so they they struggled like everybody else but but they had the degree to which they did these kinds of practices seemed to be uh, the degree to which they could say that they were, they were going to be able to raise faithful adult kids now we're not saying suggesting that this is a silver bullet or that there's a guarantee here but these are the things that do seem to stack the deck significantly in parents' favor. Uh, I would assume that not every uh, family practiced every uh, uh, every one of these things. No, but most of them did actually practice okay. a, a lot of these things. Uh, yeah. Because, again, when, when you're doing a study like this, you, you have a relatively smaller sample size because you're trying to find out what's, what's unique about these people. And so when you find a group that has a lot in common... Um, they tend to say a lot of the same things. Yeah, gotcha. 
So mm-hmm. now this, I mean, this validates what you've been doing with your liturgy of domestic church life. Yes, and of course we were very pleased to see that. And and this, the the framework of the liturgy of domestic church life was was based on social science research. Uh, into both family well-being and faith transmission. So we weren't necessarily surprised that this was validated by this study, but uh, it pleased nevertheless. Uh, And so, yes, we developed the framework that we call the Liturgy of Domestic Church Life, which I've talked about on your show many, many times, as well as our own, um, that, that really identifies those practices that enable families to experience Christ more meaningfully at home uh, and experience the faith as a source of the warmth in their home. And, and the kinds of practices we were just talking about here in this, in this uh, segment are the sorts of things that we recommend and the sorts of things that we support families in living out through the Catholic HOM uh, app at mm-hmm. catholichom.com which is a community of Catholic families, uh, you know, hundreds of families gathering together every day to you know, learn how to live this liturgy of domestic church life, how to do these practices in their homes. Uh, when they hit snags and have questions, my whole team of pastoral counselors and coaches are there to, to help them through it and answer their questions. And we host moderated discussions. And there are tons of resources there that folks can take advantage of to really make living this out simple. That's at but Catholic our, HOM? Yeah. CatholicHOM.com, or they can download the Catholic HOM app, and the first month is free. Wow. Okay, so that's CatholicHOM.com. Uh, you can download the app. Uh, first month is free. And, and it stands for Households on Mission. Sorry. Yeah. Yes, HOM, Households on Mission. And they'll have access to the resources you have there, plus access to uh, a community. Uh, of, of, of families that are, you know, going about well, yes. this liturgy of domestic and, church life, and lots of expert guidance as well from our whole team, so that folks aren't just struggling on their own. All right, Greg, thanks. Well, thank you. Very good. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure. CatholicHOM.com. That's where you get more information. CatholicHOM Households on Mission. Uh, again, there's a Greg has put together this uh, remarkable liturgy of domestic church life which is a framework that helps Catholic households build healthy relationships. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The virtue of purity and holy chastity is certainly a very important thing, but I think we can misunderstand this beatitude. As human beings in our fallen state, we tend to love things and use people we're meant to use things and love people. We can manipulate in relationships and we can try to control other people and we can focus on other people as objects. But to be pure in heart is to be in love. And ultimately, to be pure in heart and to be happy is to be in love with God himself as well. This beatitude calls us to have a focus on being open to choosing God, choosing life, to choose love. If God is not the ultimate end of our desires and our hopes and dreams, we will be the saddest of people. Let's say yes to God and choose His way. Be focused on His love and pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. How important was unity to Jesus Christ? Very, according to the Catholic Catechism. He bestowed unity on His church at the outset. It is something the church can never lose, but with prayer and work, she can improve. This is why, the Catholic Catechism says, Jesus himself prayed at the hour of his passion and continues praying that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, may they also be one in us. The Catechism further states, the desire to recover the unity of all Christians is a gift of Christ and a call of the Holy Spirit. 
The Catechism says there are certain things required in order to respond adequately to this call. A permanent renewal of the church, conversion of the heart, prayer in common, fraternal knowledge of each other, ecumenical formation, dialogue among theologians and Christians, collaboration in good works. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Do you own popular index mutual funds or ETFs? If so, you're automatically owned shares of companies that conflict with your moral beliefs. Ave Maria mutual funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. The experienced professional portfolio managers make decisions based on investment fundamentals and pro-life values. You can learn more about Ave Maria mutual funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. We are the pro-life generation, passionate about building the culture of life in our healthcare and in our nation. But not all healthcare options are equally pro-life and some provide morally objectionable procedures. CMF Curo is different. CMF Curo is a pro-life Catholic healthcare ministry providing a pathway for its members to build the culture of life in their healthcare choices, not destroy it. Learn more about CMF Curo at MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I mean, it's a natural question. Why should I trust the Gospels, right? I mean, uh, these are ancient documents, ancient stories, uh, far removed from us by distance and culture. And at some time or other, any diligent reader of Scripture is going to begin asking some questions. Why can I trust these testimonies, these stories, um, these proclamations of good news? Well, my guest, Dr. Lydia McGrew, is uh, author of Testimonies to the Truth, Why You Can Trust the Gospels. Uh, She's also, in fact, she's joined us once before on this program, defending the reliability of the Gospels and the Book of Acts in her book, Hidden Plain View, Undesigned, Co- Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospels and Acts. And she is a widely published analytic philosopher, author, 
wife of philosopher and apologist Timothy McGrew. She received her doctorate in English from Vanderbilt University in 1995 and has published extensively in the theory of knowledge, specializing in formal epistemology and in its application to the evaluation of testimony and to the philosophy of religion. She defends the uh, integrity of the Gospels. And uh, Dr. McGrew, good to have you with me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Al. It's great to be here. This, you, you, what I love about the work that you do is you don't, you're not looking from necessarily outside the, the Gospels to verify what's in the Gospels. You actually give a close reading to the Gospels and find things there that point uh, to, well, these are believable stories. Why did you go that route? Well, I wanted to revive some older views of the Gospels from even the 19th century. My husband drew my attention to this uh, some years ago, and that got me started with Hidden in Plain View, where what they did was they tried to take what we might call common sense and apply that here. What would we expect to find if these really did come from uh, people who were in the know, who were friends with Jesus, and who really knew what they were talking about? And then the interesting thing is, when we go, we actually find that. So in a sense, we're using things from outside, but they're not these highly critical tools where we're starting by assuming that they're not true and and maybe getting a few little grains of truth out of them. Instead, we're taking for a real test drive the theory that they are coming from people who really know what they're talking about and applying that common sense to them, and it's a very fruitful method. Well, tell us, what is the lesson of your first chapter? Location, location, location. Right. Well, that's something that I didn't do in Hidden in Plain View. These are what are sometimes called external uh, confirmations. And here they come from the locations that are mentioned in the Gospels, things like geography Mm -hmm. or um, rulers and that kind of thing. And what you discover is that even in these teeny little details, like the fact that Cana is in the hills and Capernaum is uh, down actually somewhat below sea level, and John just casually says they went down Mm -hmm. from Cana to Capernaum, you know, you find them talking like they really know the places. Yeah. Do obscure place names uh, pop up? They they do. I mean, Cana itself is very obscure. It's okay. something that, you know, if John was writing in Ephesus, I doubt that his readers there were going, oh, yeah, I know Cana. You know, he's <laughs> mentioning this, this little tiny city, you know, like someone here in Michigan mentioning, I don't know, Climax, Michigan or something that uh, somebody outside Michigan might never have heard of. Yeah, yeah. Um, so do, I mean, do, do they get, let's take, let's take um, Luke, for instance. Uh, does he get the ruler's right that he refers to? He does, and it's, it's particularly astonishing when he refers to rulers that maybe are scholars at first thought didn't exist, and then in one case they they learned that he did. So there was this guy named Lysanias, Mm 
And Luke mentions him in the beginning verses of Luke 3. Well, the only Lysanias that we had heard of for a long time had died long before the time of Christ, you know, decades before, and they thought, oh, you know, it just made a mistake. And then there was an archaeological discovery of this uh, inscription that indicated that there was another Lysanias that actually lived during the time of John the Baptist and the time of Jesus. He could have even been the, the other guy's son. You know, so Luke got it right after all. Wow. What about names like Pilate, uh, Herod, Antipas, uh, Herod's brother Philip? Do we have references outside the text to those names? We do. Uh, in Josephus, for one, um, you know, the Jewish historian. And the interesting thing there is that you really see Luke's historical intention, where he's mentioning both more famous and less famous rulers, all just to uh, pinpoint the year when he says, uh, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, that would be John the Baptist, in the wilderness. It's like, boom, 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 boom. When all these people were reigning, that's when John the Baptist started his ministry. So there's no question of Luke trying to write something mythical or legendary. He is really locating it precisely in history. Yeah, in the prologue to his gospel, he makes seems to make a big deal about checking all these things out with the eyewitnesses and those who are ministers of the Word. Um, and I assume we ought to take him at face value there, right? I think we should, and the great thing is that we don't even have to just kind of be naive and go, oh, well, you know, if he says he's telling us the truth, I guess he must be. But we can say, well, does it look like he's telling yeah. us the truth? Yeah, and when we look, it, it turns out that it does look exactly like that. Yeah. Um, you talk about uh, undesigned coincidences, and um, that was also in your, your earlier book. But what is an undesigned coincidence? It's an incidental fitting together of details that points to the truth of both stories, even when they come from different sources or different people. I like to give a, a made-up example. If you had two people who said that they saw a bank robbery, and one of them said, hey, the, the guy tripped when he was running away, and then the other uh, person claiming to be a witness said, so I looked at him and his shoe was untied. Hmm. Those two stories would fit together, even though they're different people telling these different things. But yeah, why did he trip? Because his shoe was untied. So they're not trying to make their stories fit together. They're just both telling the truth, and that's why their stories fit together. So do we see that kind of uh, fitting together between the Gospels? And John's Gospel, which is you know not one of the synoptic Gospels. Yeah, that's what's really interesting, is that they don't even always tell the same stories, and yet they can fit together um, even in different stories. So I'll, I'll give an example. This one wasn't in my earlier books. So this is a new example in this book. Um, in the Synoptic Gospels, we have the story of Bartimaeus and his friend, the two blind men who are healed by Jesus in Jericho, and it says they... Uh, heard a you know loud noise of all the crowd coming, and they said, "What's happening?" And the people said, "Jesus of Nazareth is passing by." They immediately begin to cry out, "Son of David, have mercy on us and help us!" And and they come to Jesus, and he asks what they want. They say that we may receive our sight. Now, what you might not notice is that in the uh, Synoptic Gospels, 
we haven't seen any account of a miracle performed that far south near Jericho in the synaptic. They focus on Jesus' ministry up north in Galilee. So how did they know to where they got so excited right away? Well, you go over to John's Gospel. He doesn't have that story about those blind men, but he has a story about a different blind man about six months before that who was born blind that Jesus healed right in Jerusalem, which is closer to Jericho. And also he raised Lazarus from the dead. Those stories were really uh exciting to people in that vicinity. Very plausibly, that's how those two blind beggars in Jericho thought to themselves, hey, maybe this guy can help us. So those are totally different stories, and yet the one helps to explain the other. Yeah. Uh, Is there any particular gospel writer that kind of has more undesigned coincidences than others? I find that John, if you just count them up, probably has the most. And my theory about the reason for that is that uh, he tells so much unique material. So in a sense, I say the more John tells us, the more he gets confirmed, which is not what critical scholars think. They want to say just the opposite, you know, that he's making up more stuff. But actually, we find that precisely because he's saying, uh, telling different things, then he fits in these subtle ways with the synoptics. But they do all have them, and in different directions. I'm just curious from the standpoint of of, uh, academic scholarship on this, um, is there a new respect for for this kind of close reading? It really depends on who you ask. Okay. You know, Um, you know, I would say among the sort of self-consciously critical scholars, take someone like Bart Ehrman, he's a skeptical scholar. Um, No, he doesn't have any new respect at all. (laughs) But but I'd like to say that within the Christian community, I'm hoping I'm doing my small part along with other scholars, like there's a a British scholar named Peter J. Williams, who uh, has a book called uh, Can Can We Trust the Gospels, you know, doing some similar things, Mm -hmm. where I'd like to say we're giving people uh, a stiffer backbone to to say, no, you know, you actually, you don't have to make concessions. You actually can defend these things as honest reportage. Yeah. How significant is the debates about dating the Gospels? Um, in some ways, dating estimates have gotten less extreme to where, you know, you won't really find scholars putting John away in the second century or whatever. Um, But I I don't think we always need to nail the dating down precisely, and I think John's a good example. If it was in fact written by a disciple of Jesus who had an excellent memory, then if he's writing before the Uh, fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, or if he's writing in his old age in A.D. 85, as long as we can tell that he really is an eyewitness and he really remembers things well, it's more the authorship that matters than the exact dating. Gotcha. Dr. Lydia McGroom, This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile. 
everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. There was a big story about this Catholic college saying, oh, we are going to open our doors to anyone who identifies as a woman. So a male student coming in, but if he calls himself a woman, that's fine. This is all about diversity and equality. This is a Catholic women's college. And so, thanks be to God, there was a lot of pushback. And guess what? The school rescinded. How important it is not to give up and to remember that we can and should respectfully, always with love, express our concerns. It doesn't matter. The victory is up to God. But sometimes we do see that success in the victories, as is the case with St. Mary's College, who says now it needs to go back to its roots and get a deeper understanding of what it means to be a Catholic college for women. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Good family discussions don't just happen, they take time. Family talk rituals help families be intentional about making real conversations happen. You need to be intentional if you want to get past exchanges like, what'd you do in school today? Nothing. Believe it or not, when the relationship between parents and kids is healthy, kids naturally want to open up to mom and dad. Kids want to know that their parents care enough to take time to listen and to understand how they're feeling and what they're going through. When parents make time to listen first, kids are more likely to willingly receive what mom and dad have to say. That's why family talk rituals are an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Lydia McGrew, uh, author most recently of Testimonies to the Truth, Why You Can Trust the Gospels. 
And again, uh, she does a very close reading of the gospel texts and points to details that um, don't make sense if the stories were simply inventions. Um, You mentioned unnecessary details, uh, for instance, uh, Dr. McGrew. What do you mean by unnecessary details? Well, what I mean is that they are not essential to the narrative, and that gives the narrative a sound like as if you were talking to, let's say, uh, a, a Gulf War veteran who's telling you about his experiences, that kind of natural oral history. We humans just tend to mention unnecessary things. So an example in the, in the Gospel of Mark would be uh, when Jesus is asleep in the boat and there's a storm and the disciples are afraid, it says he was sleeping on a pillow. Now that pillow does not, it doesn't feature, you know, that cushion doesn't have any other role, and I don't think it has some, you know, symbolic value or anything, it's just for sleeping on a pillow. And that's what Peter remembered and probably told Mark. You also point to the story of the raising of Jairus' daughter. Tell us about that. Well, in in the raising of Jairus' daughter, we have um, these details where, for example, there are flute players. They're they're there um, in the in the book of Matthew, mm-hmm. and you know they must just showed up, you know, hoping for a gig or something because <laughs> <laughs> you know we we actually find in the Talmud that it that it says to have you know flute players at a funeral to show that you uh, you know esteemed the person or whatever. So these little things again they fit with what we know of the culture at the time, and yet they're not essential to the story, rather than the kind of things these these eyewitnesses remembered. And I want to notice here, as a person with a doctorate in uh, English literature, the ultra-realistic novel that we are so familiar with was not going to be invented for hundreds and hundreds of years. They had fiction, but it wasn't like our fiction where every little detail is described or anything like that. The Gospels authors would have had to invent a non-existent genre that then fell back off the map for over a thousand years thereafter. Uh, And the better and simpler explanation is that they really got this information from eyewitnesses or were themselves eyewitnesses. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You also referred to unexplained allusions. What are they? Yeah, that's a that's a new argument in this book, um, not in hidden in plain view. So if if I were telling somebody about a car accident and I said um, I was on my way to a KSO concert and this guy rear-ended me, and I just move on and tell about you know how rude the the guy was who rear-ended me or whatever, and I'm not reflecting on the fact oh this person lives in Colorado and and he doesn't know what a K- KSO stands for Kalamazoo Symphony Orchestra, mm-hmm. and I'm so busy telling my story that I just get on I don't stop to explain that, and we find that same mark of uh, un, unconscious witness testimony, where they have their eye and their audience at every moment, like in a literary production, they're just trying to tell what happened. So an example in John, he says um, that 
the disciples of John the Baptist were having a uh, argument with someone about purification, and then they came to John the Baptist. And from then on, all we get is they complain about Jesus making more followers than John the Baptist, and John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. We literally never get back to what that dispute was about. Specifically, was it a follower of Jesus? What were they arguing about purification? Nothing. It just gets dropped. That's because John the Evangelist knows that that was really how that that argument got started and really why they came to John the Baptist. But then he wants to get on to John saying, he must increase, I must decrease, so he drops the dispute. Mm -hmm. That's an example of an unexplained allusion. Yes. Um, And you mentioned this is a a new category that you've discovered. Um, What about, you, you write about the Sons of Thunder, uh, mm-hmm. James and John. I've always thought that was a funny, uh, a funny designation. Uh, do we have any further? <laughs> do we have any explanation of this nickname? Not explicitly. I mean, people have theorized that it might have been, you know, related to when they called upon. Uh, they asked Jesus if they should call fire down from heaven. Now, um, sometimes an unexplained allusion is what I call one half of an undesigned coincidence. It's like unexplained in that document, and then you go somewhere else in another document, you find an explanation. Um, But we don't know. It could have just been that they were rowdy. I mean, these were all fairly young men. You know, I think I've known some teenage boys that could have been called Sons of Thunder. Yes. You know, and so all Mark is interested in is just telling you that that was their nickname, and then he just moves on. He doesn't pause like you might expect in a literary production to say, and the, the story behind that, blah, 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 blah. He's just listing Jesus' disciples and giving their nickname when he happens to know it. Should, can we assume that that nickname was something that would have been apparent to the original audience? Uh, not even necessarily. I mean, uh, maybe some members of them knew if they were in a dialogue situation, they could have said, uh, excuse me, Peter, you know, why, if it's an oral, you know, why, why were they called that, you know? Um, but I think the more interesting thing is that the author himself doesn't necessarily mind whether his audience knows the explanation because he's he's going somewhere else. In this case, with Mark, he's listing the rest of the apostles, you know. Or with John, he's he's wanting to tell you what John the Baptist said about Jesus and how humble John the Baptist was. And so that shows they're not polishing it. So even if the yeah. original audience didn't know, they're not in there going, "Oh, I got to edit that out." This audience isn't going to know what I'm talking about. Right. They're just telling it as it occurs to them. That's right. That's right. You also refer to unexpected harmonies. Give me uh, an example or two. Or what is it? What are they, first of all? Yeah, well, you know, uh, critical scholars hate harmonization. When you have an apparent or alleged contradiction, and then you're like, oh, yeah, you know, actually, that, that, that can work. That's not necessarily a contradiction. But in real life... Uh, that's often true, you know, where you'll say, oh, I think, I don't think that could have really happened that way because it seems to contradict this other thing, then it'll turn out it really did, and there's something you never thought of. So I, I do a lot in that chapter with Jesus' resurrection, the resurrection stories. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like when uh, in Luke, he reports Jesus as saying, uh, you know, don't leave, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for 
for the coming of the of the Holy Ghost. Um, well, you know, it's like in Matthew, it mentions that they went to Galilee. So, of course, skeptics will bring that up. They'll go, "Hey, did they disobey him? You know, why did they go? Why did they go to Galilee? What does it mean? Don't leave Jerusalem." But then, when you read John, you John kind of brings together Matthew and Luke, although he doesn't, you know, say he's doing that. Obviously, I don't think he was trying to do that. But you have Jesus appearing to them in Jerusalem at first. Then they go up to Galilee, and uh, they see Jesus there. Then we learn in uh, the first chapter of Acts that they were back down near the Mount of Olives. So they traveled. He was with them, as Acts tells us, for 40 days. So there was plenty of time to walk back yeah. and forth. That's an unexpected harmony that you can actually fit it all together when you, when you get up uh, high and you get the big picture. Uh, you also have a chapter on unified personalities, and your first point is that real people are hard to fake. They really, really are. You know, if you ever binge-watch television show, you'll go, hey, you know, if that guy is really so kind and sensitive and, and serious, you know, why does he do this other insensitive thing over here in this other show or whatever? Um, and even with all the resources we have now for um, being careful like that, you still get variations among writers of different episodes. But in the Gospels, what we find are several very striking personalities across uh, different stories, different Gospels, and yet it's clearly the same guy. Like, Peter is a really good example yeah, of this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, explain that, because he, well, is, so he is a character of, that's given a lot of attention. He is, he is. He's, you know, probably the most prominent disciple. So an example I like to give is that Peter likes to argue. And yet he likes to argue because he loves Jesus. So it's this very striking characteristic of what I think of as loving argumentativeness. So in the synoptics, Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. And Peter pulls him aside and he says, no, Lord, you got it wrong. You're not going to die. That, that, would, that would be terrible. Of course, Lord, you're not going to die. And Jesus is like, get thee behind me. So, you know, he really right. rebukes him. But even though Peter needs, in a sense, to be rebuked, why does he say that? Because he loves Jesus so much. He can't bear the thought of him dying. Well, now we go over to um, John, and Jesus wants to wash his feet. And Peter goes, no, no, you're never <laughs> going to wash my feet, right? That's because right. Because he's offended, because it was such a lowly, only slaves wash people's feet, you know, and Peter can't stand that thought. Well, again, it's because he loves Jesus so much, but it's a completely different story, you know, or when Jesus says, you're all going to forsake me tonight, and, and Peter says, I'm not me, <laughs> you know, even, I'll never forsake you, Lord, and there's this very touching moment in, uh, in John where Jesus says, you, you will follow me, but you can't follow me now, and Peter says, why can't I follow you now? I'll die for you. And, you know, even though we know he didn't stick to that, he did deny him later, again, there's that loving argumentativeness, that tenderness of heart. And I think that's why Peter was able to be restored after Jesus' resurrection. Yeah. And and, and it's amazing that kind of uh, extravagant personality, warm-hearted, though, 
um, Peter's walking on the water uh, story expresses this as well. Um, I, I, this consistency, um, what do, what do critical scholars do with this kind of consistency? You know, I hardly ever see them talking about it, but the closest you can get, there's a sort of assumption that we already know that these things are at least partially fiction. And so then they can attribute pretty much any degree of brilliance and creativity and in making up fiction to the authors because they've sort of already made up their minds that it's fiction to the point that it never occurs to them how implausible this is, um, that they would tell such completely different stories yeah. and yet portray the same person in such a, uh, a consistent but varying way. They're not, they're not really interested in seeing that there because they think they already know they're made up. Yeah. So what do they do then with kind of the explicit, te- explicit testimony, Luke's prologue, uh, which makes it clear he's not doing fiction here, and also in John, where he says, uh, "Eyewitness," and then First John. Uh, yeah, and First what do they Peter, make of that? where he, we didn't follow cleverly designed people. Yes. You yeah. know, it's it's an astonishing point that that doesn't bother them more. It's it's a sort of an assumption of an agenda, like almost as if these are, in a sense, hoaxes. Uh, you know, they're trying to present themselves <laughs> as true, but they're not really true. Yeah. Uh, another possibility is that, well, everybody just knew that that was just the way you talked. In- you know, you talked like you were making a, a real story, yeah. but uh, not really. Okay. Dr. McGrew, thank you again. Wonderful talking with you. It's been great, Al. Thank you so much. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. And we need to pray for all our world leaders and all those who are in such danger. See, in a day and age where people are getting further away from God, you get further away from goodness. Only God is good. Do you remember what our Lord said one day? Why do you call me good, he said. Only God is good. Only God. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. My wife Janet's ancestors arrived in America on the Mayflower, but we never knew that the Catholic missionaries arrived in Florida 50 years earlier. Visit the site where the cross was first planted, where Mass was celebrated, and the first Marian shrine in the New World. Renew baptismal vows in the cathedral in its first baptismal font. Hope you can join us in La Florida, the land of flowers. 
To learn more about your Ave Maria Radio trip, find the Ave Maria Radio Travel tab at AveMariaRadio.net. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you for being here, and do follow up. We have, of course, Lydia's book available, Testimonies to the Truth, Why You Can Trust the Gospels, available in the online bookstore at AveMariaRadio.net. Uh, the topics that we discussed today, from uh, the faith of Toby Keith to uh, the last hero of the Cold War, uh, uh, Paul, Dr. Paul Kengor, the speak, spoke recently, last Friday, with Lech Walesa. Uh, again, fascinating material. You can follow up on it by going to AveMariaRadio.net. Dr. Gregory Popcheck and the work uh, that he's done, the research, with the Future Families Project and his analysis of it, how... What do Catholic parents do effectively in passing along the faith? Uh, this is a very important, uh, very important study. So all that's available at AveMariaRadio.net. Just go to the Cresta Guest Archives. I'm Al Cresta. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.